0: One of the most striking figures in the history of the church, one of those who probably most captured the modern imagination is St. Augustine. Captured the modern imagination maybe because he lived before the Christian civilization was really established and we live at a time in which the Christian civilization seems to be crumbling. And of course, The medieval theologians were most interested in in all of St. Augustine's great works of dogmatic theology, the city of God, and the De Trinitate, but the modern world is most fascinated with the little one of his books, the most psychological and personal, the book of his Confessions. In that Confessions, St. Augustine records a spiritual autobiography, how he wandered through the world looking for something, always driven by a deep spiritual hunger, grasping now onto this and now onto that and never being satisfied by what he got a hold of, and yet always hungry and never tired of the search and always looking. In what may be the most famous passage in his confessions, he summed up perhaps better than anyone else ever has, what it means to be filled with that kind of spiritual hunger which only God can fill. Late have I loved you, St. Augustine said to God. Late have I loved you, O beauty so ancient and so new. And behold, you were within, and I was without, and there I looked for you. And I, unlovely, rushed among all those lovely things which you had made. You were with me, but I was not with you. And those things held me far away from you, although if they hadn't existed in you, then they wouldn't have existed at all. But you called, and you shouted, and you broke apart my deafness. You flashed, and you shined and you chased away my blindness. You gave forth a fragrance, and I drew in breath, and I long for you. I have tasted, and I hunger, and I thirst. You touched me, and I burned for your peace. What St. Augustine couldn't find in the things of this world, in the food of this world or its pleasures, in the relationship he had with a mistress, in the vain career he was pursuing as a professor of rhetoric, he did find, at last, in the ever-living God. Last week we introduced the theme of the seven deadly sins, what they are and where they come from, the place that they have in our tradition, and tonight we begin to go through them one by one. So it falls to me first this evening to talk about gluttony, the first of them. Gluttony is a disorder of the spiritual hunger. What St. Augustine felt so keenly was that he could try to fill up his spiritual appetite with worldly things but it would never work. The only true satisfaction, the only real fulfillment, the only actual abundance is to be found in God. But gluttony takes our attention away from that and puts it on comforts, which we can find here below. Gluttony, of course, is the disordered desire for food or drink. As we think about it, we typically think about gluttony in terms of eating too much, in such a way that our health might be compromised, or in drinking too much, in such a way that our ability to reason might be compromised. And those are forms of gluttony, but the disordered search for food and drink and the pleasures that they bring takes on a much more multifaceted form than that. St. Thomas Aquinas echoing St. Gregory enumerated the different ways in which our desire for food and drink can become disordered. We can take too much. we can insist on taking it too soon. We can be too dainty about it, too fussy about the way that it's prepared. We can spend too much money on it. We can be boorish about it, gobbling it up and not leaving any for others. In all these different kind of ways, the desire for what's maybe our most basic creature comfort can become twisted can come out of proper order. And it can compromise our health or our ability to think clearly, as in the case of excessive food or drink, but it's not just that. If we take a step back, we realize that the ways that gluttony can get involved in our lives are much more multifaceted. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis paints these portraits of people who are wrestling with some sin and have to choose to abandon it or not to abandon it goes into the, psycholo- the psychology of repentance. One of his most memorable portraits is a portrait of gluttony. It's not a portrait of someone who takes too much food, not a portrait of someone who spends too much money in food. It's a portrait of someone who says that she's only ever wanted a perfect piece of toast. But she's never found a perfect piece of toast. And she's driven everyone around her crazy in the pursuit of a perfect piece of toast. If you've ever been at a dinner where someone too fussy keeps sending their plate back again and again and again, preferring to destroy the camaraderie of the meal for the sake of getting the food just so, you know that gluttony goes beyond taking too much and damaging one's health. It's a matter at its core of needing to have our creature comforts just so and be willing to sacrifice more important goods when they're not. The children who are fighting over the last piece of cake are not necessarily taking too much, but their love of food is out of order. They'd rather fight with their friends than let it go. And if we think about ourselves and our creature comforts and how we react when we don't get what we want, we have the opportunity to meditate on the role that gluttony might have in our lives and the goods that it might occasionally steal from us. The virtue to which gluttony is opposed is the virtue of temperance. And temperance, of course, is the great virtue of self-control. It belongs to temperance to moderate our desires for pleasurable things. And so the two sins that we discuss tonight, gluttony and lust, are the sins that are especially opposed to temperance. We could say a lot about how you go about building up the virtue of temperance when it's not there, but to close off here, I just want to say one thing about building up temperance. St. Thomas Aquinas discussed about temperance as two integral parts, as he did with the other virtues. And the integral parts of a virtue are the things that always have to be there, like the components that always have to be firing together in order for the virtue to work. And he said that the two integral parts of temperance, of self-control, are called decency and shame. We might balk at that initially, but decency and shame, if we understand them rightly, are all about what helps us to be self-controlled and attracted to the noble things and repulsed by the things that are ignoble. What St. Thomas meant by shame was not so much a crushing sense of guilt or a lack of self-worth. What St. Thomas meant by shame was a kind of repulsion when something is proposed to us that would be a failure of self-control, a kind of instinctive drawing back because we know that it's not noble, because we know that it's spiritually ugly, because we know that when we give in to sins against self-control, we really turn ourselves upside down. And the higher and the nobler part of us, the rational soul which ought to govern, is instead enslaved. And the lower part of us, our desires for pleasant things, are allowed to have the higher place. It's less human. It's less dignified. And so it pertains to the virtue of temperance to pull back from that. The sense of shame that St. Thomas was talking about was not even primarily something that was oriented toward the past, although it is oriented to the past, and it can be a healthy thing when we are ashamed of something that we've done. But even more than that, the shame that's part of the virtue of temperance is oriented toward the future. It's what a man has whenever something unworthy is proposed to him, and he says, I will not do that. I would be ashamed to do that. And on the other hand, when we say that someone is shameless, we'll mean that they've lost that sense of virtue that pulls back from the ignoble and the base. And decency is the flip side of that. Decency is the instinctual attraction to acts of self control, to standing upright to claiming our dignity, to wearing the crown that God set upon our head when he made us with a rational soul in his own image and likeness. Decency not only grits its teeth and controls our desires, decency loves acts of self-control because it knows that they're noble and spiritually beautiful and it takes delight in overcoming the sins against temperance. But if we're honest, we have to admit that we live in a world which is doing almost everything it can to undermine our sense of decency and our sense of shame. You have only to flip on the television and see how food, desserts especially, are advertised to see the appeals to what's decadent, to what's indulgent, to what's luxurious. And instead of recoiling from that, saying, huh, I don't know if that's worthy, I don't know if that's in accord with my dignity as a rational being made in the image of God. Our society has tried to undermine that shame, tried to make us shameless, tried to mock the sense of decency that would pull back from that kind of thing. And so if we're going to grow in temperance, and if we're going to overcome sins like gluttony or lust, we have to try to reawaken those things. That means primarily we have to learn to love what's spiritually beautiful, to strive after it with all our hearts, to put it into our own actions. After all, although in the short term it involves a sacrifice, the sacrifice is worth it. I'll close with this reflection from one of my favorite works of poetry. It's a work by G.K. Chesterton called The Ballad of the White Horse. It tells the story of King Alfred trying to save England from the Viking invasions. There's a wonderful little scene in that poem where the king wanders off into the woods in the Viking camp, and he's in disguise, and when he wanders into the Viking camp, they don't know that it's the English king, and he has no weapons with him, no armor and no sword. All that he has is his harp. And as he enters the campfire where the Viking chiefs are, they challenge him to a sort of musical contest. First the Viking chieftains sing, then King Alfred sings, and back and forth. And as the pagans sing and the Christian king sings, they begin to paint a picture of their worldview. And the Vikings sing of indulging your appetites, of taking everything that you can get, of not worrying about others, of being manly and indulgent, and they accuse the Christians of being cowardly and weak and effeminate because they don't indulge all their appetites. But King Alfred sings of something else. He has a line in there that Chesterton puts into the king's mouth that's stuck in my mind. He says... Nor can all iron dooms make dumb, men wandering ceaselessly, if it be not better to fast for joy than to feast for misery. If it be not better to fast for joy than to feast for misery. What he was getting at is that the pagans, for all their indulgence and their feasting and their apparent cheer, were really overcome with the worst kind of sorrow and the worst kind of pessimism. They had the whole world at their fingertips and they had no idea what to do with it, and they weren't convinced that any of it meant anything. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die, is in the end the worst kind of pessimism. And you might try to drown your sorrows in a banquet or a bottle. But the Christian fasting for joy that's really the one who's happier. If the Christian denies himself, it's not out of pessimism. If the Christian denies himself, it's because he knows that something better is in store. And if the Christian fasts in this world, it's because he knows there's a banquet up in heaven where the Father, with his Son, and the Holy Spirit are full joy and complete satisfaction for all the saints through ages in. Un- through ages unending, and because the food of this world can't fill the human heart, and because only God can, gluttony is a lie, and self-control, which opens up a space in the heart by refusing to fill it with this world's delicacies, which opens up a space in the heart where God can dwell, and give joy. It's self-control that's the path to the real banquet.
1: St. Augustine's story was marked, of course, by this hunger which Father Doug talked about. And in a particular way, St. Augustine struggled with the virtue of chastity. The... uh, other side, of course, of uh, what Father Doug said with regard to uh, the two goods that we desire in this world. One is for the preservation of our own life this is food and the things that are necessary for our own uh, well being as a person, as an individual. And the other good that we desire on a natural level, which can be twisted is, of course, the desire for the preservation of our species, of, our, uh, of human nature itself. And lust is the counterpart to gluttony in, with regard to this desire for the preservation of human nature. Lust is the disordered desire for venereal pleasure, the pleasure associated with the sexual act. And it's nothing new, is it? St. Paul writes about his dangers in many of his different letters. And throughout the Scriptures, we hear the stories of how men and women fell from grace. In particular, we hear the story related to us of the man who was called a man after God's own heart, King David, who in his idleness lusted after a woman committed adultery, and eventually was led to murder. Now, of course, David repented of his sin, but the destruction of his kingdom still came about because of his act. St. Paul writes to his communities, to these early Christian communities, to avoid immorality, porneia, is the word in Greek that he typically makes use of. It means something immoral, something like fornication. Avoid immorality, he says in his letter to the Corinthians. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the immoral person sins against his own body. And he goes on to give the reason why. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been purchased at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. St. Paul wrote those words to a newly minted Christian community, embroiled in many controversies. The Corinthians struggled. They were divided over the best way to live out the gospel that Paul had given to them, And because of this, above all else in the letter, St. Paul exhorts the Corinthians to be unified in Christ. And one of the more divisive problems that he addresses in his letter was the sexual immorality, which was derived from a false understanding of the human person. From its beginnings, Christianity has struggled against anthropologies right that means the study of a human nature which perniciously divided human nature above all in christianity we struggle against these anthropologies because they devalue christ's incarnation and his passion the problem of gnosticism rejects the body as unimportant and unessential to salvation on the one hand and in this view the real man is only the spirit or the soul and the body is a mere shell from which we must be liberated and on the other hand the exaltation of the body and bodily goods far beyond their proper measure represents the opposite error the error to which we in a certain sense in our culture have fallen most prey to materialism this error fails to see that man's ultimate good, our ultimate end, lies beyond merely any merely bodily good. Ironically, though, both of those errors, both of those things, often lead to the same course of action, and you can look through history and see that this is true: the rejection of any normative restrictions on the pursuit of bodily pleasure. Paul addresses sexual immorality arising from this type of anthropology at length over and over again. He does so not only because such activity not, not only causes scandal and division within the community, but also because in Paul's view, what we do with our bodies affects our communion with Christ. St. Paul sees that the Corinthians' view of the human person, we might say our own view of the human person sometimes, of which sexual immorality is the major symptom, impedes their full reception of the gospel of the incarnate Lord. St. Thomas Aquinas succinctly summarizes St. Paul's meaning in these verses. As he writes, our body carries the Lord inasmuch as it is deputed to a divine ministry. Thus, a man should avoid sinning against his own body by fornication, which is against the glory of God and against the ministry our body owes to God. The body, your body and mine, brothers and sisters, no longer belongs to ourselves. We don't belong to ourselves. We have rather been purchased at a price. And we are now ordered to the glorification of God as part of the radical reordering of the entire human person, which was accomplished by Christ at our baptism. All of our powers then are now supposed to be used for the glory of God. Christians, you and me, must reveal Christ in our bodies because it is precisely how a person reveals themselves as what they are in the bodily and everyday life that what it means to be in Christ emerges. You're in Christ. I am in Christ. And our actions, our bodily actions, show that or, on the other hand, fail to show that. The self-communicatory nature of the physical body takes on a new and expanded meaning when it's seen in the light of the incarnation since the body of Christ reveals God to us. As St. John Paul II writes, the fact that in Jesus Christ the human body became the body of the God-man has the effect of a new supernatural elevation in every human being which every Christian must take into account in his behavior toward his own body, and obviously also toward another's body. The redemption of the body brings with it the establishment in Christ and for Christ of a new measure of the holiness of the body. Human sexuality, the free, total, faithful, and fruitful union of married men and, of a married man and a married woman, has become the sign of the union of Christ and his church. This is what I tell married couples every time when they come before the altar that there to be for us living representations of the way that Christ loves the church. Thus, for a Christian to engage in sexual acts outside of an appropriate ordering within marriage desecrates this sign. That's the real problem with lust. Fornication, pornography, masturbation, homosexual acts, deliberate fantasy, contraception, lustful thoughts, are more seriously sinful for the baptized than for the unbaptized because they contradict this new ordering that we have in Christ as signs of his love for the church. Lusts, daughters, blindness of mind, thoughtlessness, or inconsiderateness, inconstancy, rashness, self-love, hatred of God, love of this world, and a despair of the future world. Flow from this fact. I become so consumed with a bodily good, a bodily pleasure, that we forget that we're made for heaven. In the face of lust, despair, I want to offer you hope. Hope that I can offer some of that hope as the result of this meditation. But it doesn't really matter. The, the techniques that I'm going to offer and the different things that you can do, the fasting and the prayer and the planning and all of those things, it doesn't really matter. Those things don't matter if we don't understand the reason that it's worth it to struggle against this vice which, let's be honest, has captured so many in our world and to endure the long-demanding struggle for self-mastery in the first place. And that reason, brothers and sisters, is, of course, is love. The eternal and unending love of God. A love which is not content to leave us in misery, but rather calls us upward. Calls us to purity of heart. God is not calling us to a deeper repentance from our vices because of something that he needs from us. Rather, because he knows that sin, as enticing as it may appear, as glittering as it may appear, will ultimately lead to misery. He loves us, and therefore he calls us. And whether you struggle with this particular vice of lust, or gluttony, or someone you you love does, we need to remember that this struggle... Struggle against vice does not mean that God has abandoned us. God loves you. He calls you out of the shadows. He doesn't just desire that you leave lust behind. He desires you to leave these things behind for the sake of allowing you to find the truest meaning of your life, which is found only by imitating Christ's total self-gift. This is my body given for you. That is, this is my entire self, everything. I give you everything. Christ died on the cross, giving everything. And lust flips that on its head. It's not a giving and a receiving action, an interpersonal relation, but it's designed to objectify. It takes a person to whom the only proper response is to love them, makes them into an object for our use. This is perhaps the most destructive thing about lust in general, that it is the opposite of the Eucharistic sacrifice that we're called to imitate. It's for this reason that we as Christians must learn the contrary virtue of chastity which the Catechism talks about as the integration of sexuality within the person and thus the inner unity of man and his bodily and spiritual being, the right ordering of those passions. Lust makes human sexuality to be completely about me. Chastity is the great yes to freely giving myself in a way that treats the other as a person to be loved, not as something for me to use. And it allows me to give myself Completely. Now, to grow in chastity is no easy task. It includes an apprenticeship in self-mastery, a training in human freedom. But this is worth fighting for. The alternative is clear, says the catechism. Either we govern our passions and we find peace, or we're dominated by them, and we find misery. Our dignity our dignity, requires us to act out of conscious and free choice as moved and drawn in a personal way from within and not by blind impulses or by mere external constraint. We gain dignity. We grow in the virtue of decency that Father Doug talked about when we're ridding ourselves of all slavery to the passions, we press forward to this goal by freely choosing what is good, by diligence and skill, effectively securing for ourselves the mean suited to this end. What does this mean, practically speaking? Holiness and virtue are incarnational, aren't they? How do you change a vice? How do you end a habit? First of all, you remember that with grace it's absolutely possible. Christ came that you might have life and life in the full. You don't have to stay the same. In fact, Christ commands you not to remain in your misery. We're called to a total purity of heart. He says whoever looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery against her. And so we hear from St. Paul again I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, as a spiritual act of worship. The Lord reminds us in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So we remember that it's possible. And at the same time, we remember that it will be extremely difficult to overcome a deep-set vice. It will look like the cross. Make no mistake about it. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, says the author to the letter of the Hebrews. It is worth it, but it will feel like dying sometimes. Yet you must reject, you must reject the lie of the ancient serpent. We will not die. Rather, we will really live. It is a long, demanding apprenticeship to grow in this self mastery. What practical steps can you take? Whoever wants to remain faithful to his baptismal promises, whoever wants to grow in chastity and resist temptations, knows that it's possible, recognizes it will be difficult and then wishes to grow in self-knowledge, wishes to grow in a, a, a practicing asceticism, wishes to love God's commandments and to exercise all of the virtues, and above all, to pray. Now, I could go into each one of those five areas in uh, a great depth, but we'd be here all night. So I'm just going to talk about two of them, or three of them. <laughs> Quickly, I promise. First, self-knowledge. And let me say in self-knowledge, nothing helps more in coming to know yourself than having friendships. People who will tell you that you can trust, who will tell you the truth about yourself. Listen to them. Ask people around you. Help that you trust, not just anybody. Ask people around you for help. Knowing also, brothers and sisters, sitting down in a reflective moment and knowing what leads you to the occasion of lust. Sometimes in the psychological literature, this is called, uh, what's the trigger there? For example, you know that if you struggle with pornography, your phone should not be in your room at night. You know it. You already know it. I I'd Put it into practice. And eliminate as many of those triggers as possible. This leads us to that second thing that I wanted to talk about. Asceticism. If you want to grow in chastity, you want to also grow in the virtue of temperance, of which it's a part. And so you must practice, we must practice an ascetical life, adapted to the situations that confront us, This involves the time-honored tradition that every saint that I've ever read has recommended of fasting from food on a regular basis, not just during Lent. Giving up some legitimate pleasure in order to strengthen the will to say no to evil in the future. Let me just add one other way of asceticism that you might consider from social media getting off of social media or moderating it in such a way as uh, to make it a very small part of your life. You know, especially directing my comment here uh, to my young adult friends, you know that the dating apps that you might have on your phone are not leading you to virtue. Get rid of them. Get off of that kind of thing. Finally, as we uh, grow in self-knowledge and ascetical practices, we remember that it is only through the grace of God that a man comes from a state of misery, of sin, to the state of glory, the state of grace. So we must be faithful to prayer. It's through chastity, says St. Augustine, that we're gathered together and led back to that unity from which we were fragmented into multiplicity. See, chastity has something to do with being able to give yourself in a total way with no duplicity, not self-seeking, but rather seeking the good of the other. And in this, you will find joy. For the sake of the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. For the sake of the joy that lays before you, so must also you pick up your cross and follow him.